Well, brothers and sisters, it is good to worship with you this morning. Uh, Our sermon title today is Thank You, Father. Appropriately named in light of the holiday we just celebrated and the one that we'll be celebrating this Christmas season. You now have permission to put your Christmas tree up. Now, for many, this is a difficult phrase. Thank you, Father. That's a difficult phrase to say and to feel in a heartfelt way. Perhaps you've had a poor relationship with your earthly father, or you've had a hard time saying thank you to a heavenly father who has not been there the way that you thought he should be. Thanksgiving in that way can be painful for some as they reflect on family tensions or the God who seems far off. How are we supposed to be thankful on a Thanksgiving weekend with this kind of thing mounting against us? Well, those of you who are considering Christianity, Thanksgiving can be a strange day for you as well. While our commercials and advertisements and holiday traditions tell us we should be thankful, your saying thanks puts the agnostic and atheist in a bit of a pickle. If you give thanks, it means you're saying thank you to someone or something bigger, grander, more majestic than yourself. Of course, unless you're thanking yourself. While thankfulness is loaded with religious presuppositions and undertones, it's not a distinctively Christian holiday or celebration. However, the Christian scriptures assume that God's people will have a posture of gratitude. Not just one day a year on the calendar, but rather our pattern would be one of thankfulness every day of our lives. Well, our main point this morning is simply this. Faithful followers of Christ are truly, truly thankful. Hearts that have been truly changed by Jesus and his gospel, those who have believed and trusted that Jesus died and rose again for their sins, Hearts that are believing and submitting to Jesus as Lord will, by their new nature, they can't help it, will be thankful. The New Testament does not have categories for unthankful Christians. So our passage today, Luke 15, starts off with Jesus hanging around tax collectors and sinners who were drawing near to him. He was very attractive to him. And the religious folk of that day, the Pharisees and the scribes, they didn't think it proper. It wasn't proper for Jesus to be associated with such riffraff. So Jesus teaches the crowd, and by sharing three parables. Stories about a lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost son. So we consider perhaps the most well-known, the prodigal son. And I'm a bit snobby, so I reject that title. And description that's been placed in our Bibles, because I believe the story is more about the father than it is the son. In fact, as we will read, this parable is about a father who had two sons. So we'll consider all three individuals and see what the Lord would have for us this week as we seek to be a truly thankful people. Would you read with me, please, in Luke 15, verses 11 through 32. And he, Jesus, said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, 
Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread to eat? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise. And go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose, and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion, and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, "Uh, Bring quickly the best robe, put it on him. Put on a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found And they began to celebrate. Now, his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry. And refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father. Look, these many years I've served you. You never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is the word of God. Well, first we see in Jesus' story in this parable, we see our natural rebellion. And I get this directly from verses 11 through 16. Now, this first son we consider is the outwardly wayward son. The son who brazenly demands his share of the inheritance from his father. Now, culturally, you may know this already, the younger son would receive one-third of his dad's fortune when he dies. The young man certainly doesn't have a thankful heart towards his father. In fact, he wants his father dead. He wants him 
dead. Now, that may seem extreme, but it's much closer to the truth than it may appear. This demand, wanting the future inheritance now, essentially says this. Old man, I'm not going to wait around for you to die. I want what's mine now. And this likely signifies that the son has lived with years of disdain and even hatred for his father. This isn't a spur of the moment, off-the-cuff feeling. It's a product of an angry attitude to his father for years. Shockingly, shockingly, the father agrees. The fact that verse 13 says that this business is done just in a few days likely implies that parts of the land, the estate, the cattle, they were sold on the cheap, very quickly liquidated and probably at a loss. So the son could get the bread, the bag, the money, the cash, and go. Now, the word prodigal, it means to spend or live in a reckless or lavish manner. And what we find with the son and what we see in our own hearts is that we all desire, in a sense, to leave home again and again and live lavish, reckless lives that meet every preference and desire of our hearts. That's what we want. The natural bent of our hearts is to demand our own way, to lack a thankful posture for the life that God has given us. This son didn't become lost when he abandoned his family with a pocket full of cash. That's not when he was lost. The son had been lost, angry, selfish, greedy, while he lived under the roof of his parents' home. And like many of us, when we leave home, our choices reveal where our hearts were all along. Left to ourselves, we would not choose to stay under God's authority, but instead we would wander into a far country of sin, I once heard. And that's what this young man did in our parable here. Jesus, in short summary, tells us that following our rebellious, ungrateful hearts, well, it doesn't play out the, th- the way we think it will. For a moment, at the end of verse 13, the grass, it did seem greener on the other side. Oh, poor younger son. He's living under dad's rules. He can't live out and express himself the way that he wants. And for a moment, he could do whatever his heart would desire. It was good. Reckless living, pursuit of self, and the seemingly free opportunity for full joy in the moment was pleasurable. But then in verses 14 through 16, Circumstances changed, as they often do. A famine came, and this young man had lived as if there was no tomorrow. And when tomorrow came, he was desperate. And there's a lot that could be said in this passage about a good Jewish boy working with pigs. We could talk about the regret that he felt, the embarrassment that he suffered. We could talk and speculate about that what that reckless living really looked like. And he probably daydreamed about it as he's with those pigs. But I believe Jesus' aim, however, is to point out the natural condition of everyone in this room. We want more. 
We want different. We want to be king of our own lives. And for some of us, we have extended seasons and even a good portion of our lives where our selfish living works out for us. Or so we think. You see, we don't naturally think ourselves as desperate. We suppress any kind of discomfort or conviction in life. And we convince ourselves we are doing good. I'm fine. How are you on a Sunday morning? <laughs> I'm good. But we fail to see that our condition, especially spiritually, is just as bankrupt and just as much of a failure as this son's life had become as he slopped around with those pigs. But for some, we don't stay that way. For some, something changes. We look next at our supernatural sorrow. Now, I see this in verses 17 through 19, and I'll confess at the, at the outset here, there are a number of writers that I would disagree with on these verses. That phrase at the end of verse 17, or the beginning rather, when he came to himself, it has been argued by some that the son's repentance and his sorrow was incomplete. Or in still many ways, he's scheming, it's flawed. It's a self-sufficient plan that he's drummed up to save himself from his dire situation. In the beginning of his apology, he starts out and he says, I have sinned against heaven and before you. There's only one other person in the scripture who has a similar pattern of apology. It might be shocking, but we read that same apology, that same fake apology, from Pharaoh in Exodus 10, the tyrant king, as he says to Moses, I've sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now, I won't disagree that there are aspects of this son's changed mind that are flawed. He's not first concerned about a fractured relationship with his father. He's desperate. He's desperate for a change of circumstance and food and safe living. But can't we argue from the whole, from the totality of Scripture, that our wills are conditioned either by sin or by God's Spirit? So if this young man is volitionally saying, I made a mistake, I need to make things right. I need to consider going back to the life and the family I abandoned. Is that not God's supernatural grace? I think it is. The work may not be done here, but it's where it begins. And I think we've seen in our own hearts, in the hearts of others that we've cared about, for some, a total inability to ever come to this condition. How often have we or others recklessly lived and made choices and have never come to our right mind? There's some people waiting, wondering right now if you will come to your right mind about something, I'm sure. God help us. Well, I think that that's often true with us. Many of us never reconsider. We never self-reflect 
We never show any kind of real humility. Many of our lives are marked by doubling down and digging in our heels. And perhaps you've walked away from God, family, or what you know to be right. And no matter how hard it is, even though it isn't what you thought it would be, you're too proud to turn back. By God's grace, this young man did. And many of us have. And if you haven't turned back, would you consider that perhaps God would have you hear this so that you would come to your right mind? Maybe a firmer way to say that is many of us have independently, selfishly put ourselves as king and trampled over people and had disdain for the nature and the promises of God every time that I choose sin, every time that you choose sin, what we are actively doing is turning our back on the God who made us for our own pleasure. Oh, that God would give us a true repentance and sorrow. A sorrow that says, I made a mistake. I need to turn back. I'm not doing things as cleverly as I think I have. Well, next we see, thankfully, our initiating father. And in Jesus' parable, we see this in verses 20 through 24. Now, the son makes the long journey back from a far country. And he's been rehearsing his apology, I think. But unknown to him, his father has already been acting. Now, we'll see more in a moment. But verse 20 is telling. We can gather from this one verse that the father was loving his son the whole time as he was gone. The father had been prepared. He'd been ready. He'd been waiting. The father had already taken mental, emotional, and physical steps toward his son in preparation that that son would come back. And I speculate, but the father maybe had initiated, perhaps, in the moment that he coldly had the cash taken from his hands. I wonder in that moment if the father had resolved in his heart as he handed the cash over to say, I love this boy and I'll be ready for him if he comes back. The father had already decided to love him to receive him to already prioritize going to the city gates every day to wait to see if his lost boy would come home. Now, some of the language is lost on us in our English Bibles, but the father in verse 20 smothered that boy in his loving. Embrace, tears of joy, snot running out, screams of delight, constant hugging and kissing. The old man even hiked up his robe and sprinted to receive his son. No dignified man would do that. That's the equivalent of a father running down in his underwear to go get his boy. He doesn't care. His boy was alive and that boy had come home. Well, perhaps the researched and rehearsed speech was cut off. He didn't finish everything he was going to say. More likely, the son didn't finish, not because he was cut off, but because he saw his father's love and reception of him. So the young man repents. 
shows true remorse and readies himself for what he deserves. A swift punishment, a cot to sleep in the barn, a full day of hard work and labor in the morning, a chance to earn his way back, a chance to pay off his debts, a chance to earn forgiveness. He's ready. But as we read, the father would have none of that. In verses 22 through 24, we see a robe, ring, shoes, and not just any calf, the fattened calf. One that got saved for special occasions. It was a celebration. Now you can imagine how thankful the son was. His father received him, gave him what he didn't deserve, gave him what he couldn't earn. Grace. Pure grace. One writer put it this way. This is what a good father does. He lavishes his wayward children with love, no matter the cost. In this story, Jesus shows us the costly demonstration of unexpected love. The undeserved affection of a father who loves us even more than we dared to hope. This earthly father initiated and demonstrated a love that points to a greater love. This earthly father lost money. He lost property. He lost respect and reputation from others. He lost his son who had rebelled against him. It cost him a great deal, and yet he loved. He loved his boy. I don't know why I heard this once, but Someone once said, although the son was far away from his father's house, he was never away from his father's heart. Here's an extended challenge and reminder to us. So many parents do the exact opposite, even Christian parents. When their children or grandchildren start going off in the wrong direction, they speak to them with scorn. And treat them with shame. Instead of humbling themselves, they humiliate their children, even to their own destruction. But here, Jesus gives fathers and mothers a better model to follow. Redefining what it means to be a godly parent. The father does not wait to see what his son will say for himself. The father does not demand an account of what he's done and where he's been. His welcome is not contingent on his son's prior repentance or on his promise to do better in the future. Instead, the father takes the initiative to go out and gather his unworthy son into the embrace of his love. It's not that there isn't a time for accountability and questions. There is. The point is the father's bent his initiation and love that is overflowing for his kid. This is but a shadow of a greater love, a greater reason to be a people who are continually thankful. What great hope this gives to lost sinners like you and I. Even after we've wandered in the far country of sin, even after we've wasted everything we have, even after we've wallowed in the pig 
pen, the foul pig pen of our rebellion against God. We have a good, loving Father who's running to welcome us home. If you've wandered and you're here this morning, if you've wandered, there is great grace for you in the gospel of Christ. Jesus lived a perfect life, died in the place of sinners, and rose again from the grave. This good news is the initiating work and love of God. A loving God who Paul said, even while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Even when we were far off, God came. God initiated and he gladly receives us when we come. The cost of the death of Jesus was great. But our Heavenly Father takes on that cost because he loves his children. Praise God. He is good. Well, the story you think would end there. But lastly, we consider not just the initiating father, but our hesitant gratitude. And the chapter finishes this out in verses 25 through 32. It seems very natural, as I said, for the parable and the story to finish with a wild party and celebration. Everyone is thankful, especially that lost son. Everyone with the exception of one person. The older son hears from one of the workers why the party is taking place. Why is the party taking place? Look again at verse 27. Your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him. Back safe and sound. The celebration seems to be just as much about the father as it is about the son. Because he has received him. One writer commented, People were celebrating the father's unlimited love and welcome. Not simply the son's unexpected return. It's a celebration of a loving father receiving a boy. Well, Big Brother isn't too happy, and I can't blame him. Now remember, a third of the inheritance was taken by the wayward son, spent, lost, gone. The 401k looks different. It has hurt the family financially. He lost it all. So to throw a big party seems disrespectful. And on top of that, have you ever thought of this? Who's paying for the party? Who's laying down the cost for this party? The party's being rung up. Put it on my tab. It's being rung up on the other two-thirds of the inheritance of the family wealth. The cost is essentially coming out of the older brother's future inheritance. Older brother is paying for a younger brother to be celebrated. That might rub me a little raw too. And it was more than that. We read that the big brother is enraged, refusing to go into the party and celebrate his father's love and his brother's return. Now, verse 28 is really clarifying. 
this initiating father again takes the first step. Not just with the son who left, but now with the older son who we find to be just as lost. Verses 29 and 30, the lostness of this older son is demonstrated in that his heart is just as bitter, just as angry, and just as selfish as the brother who had left. This older brother stayed, but he didn't value his relationship with his father. He's been seeing his relationship with his father for all these years as simply a means to an end. This brother is more concerned about time served, his moral behavior, his lack of parties and goats, and his self-righteous comparison to his younger brother. The older brother hates his father too. One pastor explains it this way. It's not his badness keeping him out, but it's his goodness. It's not his sins that are keeping him from sharing in the feast of the Father so much as his righteousness. The elder brother, in the end, is lost, not despite his good record, but because of it. He did not understand that his father loved him because he loved him. Not because of anything that he had done or ever could do. The self-righteous son or daughter who outwardly says and does all the right things, but inwardly despises the father, is no different than the wayward child who flaunts their sin for everyone to see. Both have heart issues. Both have heart issues. One is flagrant. One is secret. Both are disconnected from the father. Now, some of us here, we look at our life and we can identify more closely with one son rather than the other. However, it is common. It is common for well-meaning Christians like you and I to be the wayward child, to be brought back, and then for us to turn into the older brother. It is common for well-meaning Christians to be that wayward child. And then we transform somehow into the older brother. We look down on others. And that's essentially what the religious folk of Jesus' day were doing. The Pharisees were upset that grace was being shown to sinful people. They looked down on the wayward, not realizing that like the older brother, they too were wayward in heart. So we have two sons, both lacking a thankful heart probably on a Thanksgiving Eve. But a kind, initiating father who loves them, pursues them, seeks to bring health, peace, joy, and reconciliation. And brothers and sisters, so it is with us. Faithful followers of Christ are truly thankful. We're thankful for the gospel of Christ, we're thankful for the life that our Heavenly Father has given us. Yes, our life, our imperfect, at times frustrating life. We're thankful for that life because God's given it to us. We're thankful that we have Him and we can trust Him when we find ourselves struggling, hurting, and discontent. We are thankful that we are sons and daughters despite our performance, but because of the perfect performance of Jesus on our behalf. 
Now, please allow me here to close with a challenging word of application. I read it this week, and I think that it will not only bend our hearts to be thankful to who God is, but it will shape us as we love the people around us this week. Tomorrow is Monday morning, and we go back to the real world, and we have to do this. We have to say, okay, I've been told from the Scriptures that it is good. It is good for me to be a thankful person. And I don't just say it at a dinner table when I have Thanksgiving meal. But the posture of my heart is to be thankful. Now, how do I go out and how does that affect me tomorrow at school, at work, in the community? Well, hear this good but hard word. The way that you know you are communicating and the way you know you are living the same gospel message of Jesus is that those younger brothers are more attracted to you than the elder brothers. This is a very searching test because almost always our churches are not like that. The kind of people attracted to Jesus, for some reason, are not attracted to us. We only attract conservative, buttoned-down, moral people. But the licentious, the liberated, the broken, the people out of the mainstream, the people who need help, they very much despise us. That may mean only one thing. We may think we understand the gospel of Jesus, but we don't. If we don't see the same effect that Jesus saw, then we lack the same message that Jesus had. If our churches aren't filled with younger brothers, wayward sons that need help, if our churches aren't filled with wayward younger brothers, then perhaps we are more like the elder brother than we'd like to think. And my friends, that is the challenge for us. If you have received God's kindness to you in Christ, if you at one time were that wayward child who's been brought home, then we are to be a community, faithful followers of Christ, who gladly receive the wayward and the self-righteous. The wayward and the self-righteous in our community and in our families and in the mirror that need the same heart change as the person next to us. Lakewood, may the Lord enable us to love because we have been deeply loved. May the Lord bring us many wayward children. May we love them well. May the Lord bring us many self-righteous, wayward children so that we would love them well in Christ. Would you pray with me that God would do that? Father, that is our prayer. That we would be the reflection of Christ to our families and community. God, that we would be so in love with your initiating work in our behalf. That yes, many of us have been wayward. Many of us have been self-righteous. But you, Father, came to us and changed us. 
you invited us home when we didn't deserve it. You've been kind to do a work to give and offer forgiveness through your son, Jesus. Thank you, Father. Thank you. And now in turn, Lord, would you shape our hearts in such a way that as we navigate the journey and the life that we've been given, that we would show that same kind of affection and love. And Lord, this week, when we find ourselves wayward again, when this heart prone to wander, yes, we feel it, when we're prone to leave and forsake the God that we love, would you be kind to bring us home again? We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.